Hey, Linda. What? Why was the strawberry so sad? I don't know, why? Because his parents were in a jam. Family Gaming Podcast. This is episode 200.5, and I'm your host, Stephen Dutzman. This week, I am joined by our managing editor of board games, Linda Roble. Hello. Hey, Linda. How are you? I'm doing all right. Great. Um, glad to have you back specifically for a board game episode, um, and looking forward to having you back a whole bunch more as the episodes continue to roll in, but you and I are joined by a very special returning co-host, um, my lovely wife, Jenna. Hello, everybody. And so Jenna took, has taken a bunch of time off from the podcast. She's been here uh, a lot. Um, in the past, she was filling in for people. She did everything except permanently host the podcast um, and replace me for for any length of time because um, I'm I'm irreplaceable. Um, but Jenna, thank you for coming back to celebrate the 200th ish episode of our podcast. You are very welcome. I'm looking forward to it. So this week we're going to talk about board games. Last time. Uh, I was joined by John Tomlinson, the man behind the curtain, and Amanda Farrow, the princess of power, who sends her regrets, by the way. She's actually not able to join us this week. The day job got a little crazy busy um, for her. So uh, we talked about video games, and specifically we talked about some of the developments in video games kind of since Engaged Family Gaming started, and specifically uh, focusing on some of the major developments and things that happened while... Uh, the podcast was running, we're going to do something similar with board games. Because what's really interesting, and Linda, you and I were talking about this before we came on the air, is, like, in the last, like, four years or so, not much has happened in the video game space with the that is relevant to us, with the exception of the release of the Nintendo Switch and the rise of, the meteoric rise of Fortnite. Um, whereas in board games, um, there's a fair amount of stuff that has happened and, you know, maybe it didn't originate during the time of our podcast, but it definitely has kind of caught hold. So we thought we would, uh, kind of talk about some of those cool topics. Um, most notably as a tease, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the release of Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition. Uh, we'll be talking about the the dominance of legacy games. Um, and then we're going to be talking about uh, digital versions of board games and how that has just gotten super wild. Um, so, yeah. Um, why don't we just get started? Um, Sounds good. So, first, let's talk about Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. Um, I think that's super relevant because the three of us were literally playing it yesterday. Um and, you know, and not only were we playing it, but uh, we were playing it with our kids, which is um, kind of a, a, a treat that not everybody gets to, to have. And um, I, I, I would like to think, and maybe I'm biased because I was running it, but I like to think that our kids are enjoying themselves. Jenna, what do you think? Well, I definitely think that they are enjoying themselves. We've come up with some strategies along the way to make it a little bit smoother. Um, having played Dungeons and Dragons in many iterations over the year, I am I'm happy to say that I think this is simple enough that kids can play it, but complex enough that the game itself is still enjoyable. So I'll be happy to talk about some of our strategies that we've come up with along the way. Sure. I think we will. Linda, so everybody that listens to this podcast knows that like you like jump right into the deep end of the dork forest <laughs> um and dungeons and dragons is like relatively light fare compared to some of your other nerdy pursuits um but realistically i mean you've played other editions of dungeons and dragons back when we were younger but you know 
when you compare it, you know, what do you think about Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition? Um, and we'll talk t- about some of the history about it in a minute, but I just want some first plush impressions. What are your thoughts on it as a system now? Well, as a system now, especially compared to the earlier iterations that I've encountered, definitely much more streamlined, much easier to pick up, and just more user-friendly. And that's really the key thing with having the kids play. It's got to be user-friendly. They they can't get into the weeds with some of these nuances too much. It just overwhelms them. So it has to be streamlined, and I think this fits the bill perfectly for for what we need. Yeah. I mean, so, and what's interesting is that was kind of one of the design philosophies for 5th edition. Um, I remember, you know, EFG existed, and we got the press release saying that Dungeons & Dragons... Wizards of the Coast was going to be doing playtesting for what they call D&D Next, which was, you know, it was going to be largely driven by feedback um, from players, and they released playtest packets and gathered lots of information, and I was just waiting, knowing they shared their core design philosophy was that they wanted to make it easier to play, more accessible for um, you know, new players for lapsed players and for younger players. And as soon as I got my hands on that player's handbook, um, I knew it that, that they had hit exactly what needed to happen. And now that we are successfully playing with, you know, admittedly, you know, you know, our oldest is thirteen, which is crazy to think about considering where we were when how old he was when EFG started seven years ago when he was like six right and barely playing Skylanders um and now you know he's Uh you know but yeah exactly right thinking about it's well and think about where Isaac was and you know you know like and our youngest ones were literally infants yeah exactly so we if that even um so it is crazy to think about kind of where we are and you know so we've got our you know a 13 year old who probably would be able to play even the older versions but our two 11 year olds who are you know just right in the thick of it and really enjoying it and the game is not getting in their way i think it took a little bit of time for our guy um and i'm sure jenna will have some comments on how we helped fix that but you know it, but all three of them have really just kind of embraced the game and are participating in it. And I don't think they could have necessarily done it as readily with previous editions. What do you think, Jen? No, I wouldn't have. Go ahead, Linda. I, I don't think they would have been able to do it with earlier editions. It would have been too overwhelming. Um, I think the simplification of the process, the fact that they can pick their character, that they're, all of their points are very easily added on, easy to understand. The way the dice rolls work now makes everything much less complicated. And some of that stuff gets in the way of enjoying the game. So I think that this really does allow them to immerse themselves in the role play part of it, listen to what's going on around them, and and really not worry so much about the dice and what are they going to do next and what's next on the card. And the way it's simple now, I think it's just much better. Agreed. I think it really lets them focus on the story, not the stats. Yeah, I think that's a that's a nice uh, kind of bumper sticker way to kind of simplify the 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 the, the situation. I think it, another positive change that kind of came from the rise and now what I can safely say is like dominance of Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition is they've changed the way that um, their content is released. Um, Jenna remembers 3.5 and the books upon books upon books that I kept buying and coming home with. And it was like every time I went to the bookstore, I came home with another source book. And I could only imagine how much easier it would be now if I was, you know, because Amazon. Um, It felt like every month a new book was coming out with more rules tacked on top of more rules that weren't necessarily playtested together. And so everything was just kind of nuts. And so they've simplified it now so that basically they're just 
a new uh, everything's kind of tied to adventures um, and so new rules come along with new adventures um, and that happens every three months or so and I, I mean they have released and are going to continue to release like new campaign settings like Eberron is coming out later on this fall um, but a lot of the content has come out just alongside the different adventures that they put out and they put out a new adventure every you know three or four months um, that has simplified it a lot um, they've also released a lot of content just for free online. Um, you know, in our game that we played yesterday, you know, we have, uh, our, you know, one of our dear friends, Gretchen, plays a ranger, and there's, like, a whole new ranger, like, it, it, the all new rules, because they were underpowered in the core rulebook. She's just playing using rules that are just free online as, a, like, an upgraded version of the class, which, realistically, that would have been locked behind a paywall, in previous editions, which I think is really, you know, it's a it's a different philosophy, um, but I think it's a win for them in the long term. It's true. You're getting more people that want to come in and tell the stories that they're writing. I think that's no. Go no I, I think that's absolutely the case. You're getting more more stories, more adventures, more fun, and they're really realizing that. People who played Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s and the 90s when it first came out are now parents and they have kids and they want to share that experience with them. So they've come up with young adventurers packs and they've come up with books designed for kids and they've come up with campaigns all to draw kids in, knowing that the parents can share that with their own kids. So I think that they've kind of hit that sweet spot of taking their original fans and and, and catching them in and then giving them something to do to play with their children. Absolutely. And it doesn't hurt that Stranger Things features Dungeons and Dragons. So it's exposing a whole new generation that might not have thought twice about it to, to the game. <laughs> I don't think my microphone was working. Anyways, I think D and D now has become part of mainstream culture. I mean, in my high school, there are kids who I would never picture playing D&D that are actually now playing it, talking about it. Um, they heard about it through mainstream media, not just Stranger Things, but other stuff that they're watching online, YouTube videos. It's, it's, it's part of culture now that you don't usually, or I don't remember seeing. Like kids who played D&D when I was in high school with my friends, we were rare, obscure, nerds. Like we, we kept it kind of quiet it wasn't something that you talked about whereas now kids are just coming into the office saying oh yeah we had the best time and you know we had a gaming club and that kind of fell by the wayside but the fact that it's just being talked about not among the athletes and stuff but it's i'm surprised right it's definitely become more mainstream i think also with its internet and the social media as much as it's got its flaws it is showing people that were isolated into their small core groups when we were teenagers, we didn't know about other people playing necessarily outside of our core group. Whereas now there can be this wider connection and know that you're, it's not just your group. You are not obscure. You're not, it's not just you. And I think that can also be very powerful to see the broader picture. It also doesn't hurt. And I, I take a picture of it and put it up on our Instagram every time I see it, right? And Linda, I'm sure you've seen this. Like, every time I go to Target and I see Dungeons and Dragons books, like, I still just, like, it stuns me that I can, that it's Target, you know what I mean? And they have, um, I mean, and they, in a number of occasions, you know, they've, they've had um, kits. They have the starter uh, set. Now they have the essentials kit. Um and the Essentials Kit, by the way, um, has rules in it for one-on-one -on -one Dungeons & Dragons, which is a Dungeon Master and a player, and they actually have, like, a cohort that they can kind of control that's almost like a, not a like half of a second character, um, which is, you know, one-on-one -on -one Dungeons & Dragons is something that no one ever would have ever really thought of before. You know, that's something that, you know, you could do, but it was like a really, you know, it was Dungeons & Dragons didn't even support it, and now there's core rules for that being sold at Target. <laughs> like, which I just 
like I said, I, I, I mean, how many pictures on our timeline are just me gawking at Dungeons & Dragons stuff at Target? I don't know. A lot of them. Um, and that can't hurt, you know. The, the, and it's such a brilliant idea on Wizards. It doesn't hurt. Wizards of the Coast is owned by Hasbro, who knows how to market toys, and they know how to market things that people like. That's one of their specialties. They've been doing it for decades and will continue to do so. Um, but it's been great. You know, over these last handful of years, while this podcast is going, just watching Dungeons and Dragons grow and flourish, and it shows no signs of stopping. Um, and man, some of the stuff coming out later on this year is just—it's it's so good. They have D and D stuff not only at Target but at Walmart now. And both Linda and I worked in bookstores in the '90s, and I know that my bookstore didn't have any D&D books. We had to go to a gaming store to get those when D&D was a thing. Um, and then I started seeing them in Barnes & Noble and Walden books, but that wasn't until much later. And like you said, the fact that you can go into Target and Walmart, and right. they're everywhere. It's right. amazing. See, it's funny. You said that I worked at a Walden books, and when I started in the early 90s, we did have a D&D section. It was tiny. It was a very, it basically was an end cap on an interior shelving so it was tucked mm -hmm. away but we did have this little narrow section of D&D books yeah we and... didn't have any in my bookstore yeah. until much later I remember um you know this is back like with advanced Dungeons and Dragons which was like second edition I remember going to bookstores in the mall and there would be like a shelf like not even an end cap not just a shelf with just a handful, you know, like a couple of copies of each book just kind of shoved together. And this was before the internet, so like I really had no idea what was being published, what was available. So it's like you found stuff and it was like, whoa, it was, it was basically like magic. Now, you know, we have the gift of the internet and websites like Engage Family Gaming <laughs> that, you know, that talk about these things. Um, and, you know, there's a pretty crowded release calendar uh, this year just of Dungeons & Dragons products releasing, um, which is nuts. Uh, just this November, um, they have, you know, the Eberron campaign setting, which is, you know, it, it, Eberron is a Dungeons & Dragons campaign setting, like a world that was designed by a player as part of a contest. Now it's one of the most popular ones they have. Um, and it includes an adventure um, set inside that world, which is just crazy. Um, but also, they have the third book in this series for uh, young adventurers, which um, you know Jenna has. We have two cop uh, two of those books that we got for our daughter Megan. Uh, the first one is called uh, Weapons and Warriors, and the other one is called Monsters and Creatures. Um, the next one is called Dungeons and Tombs. Um, and I think next year is Wizards and Spells. And the idea is these books are targeted at, you know, the younger set. I don't want to say early readers because those books are definitely not that. But, Jen, what do you think of these? Because you've been taking a look at these ever since I brought them into the house. Yeah, no, I think that they are, I mean, it's not a player's handbook, but they are little guides about things for, for younger adventurers. I'd say probably the 9 to 12 year old range um, with regard to reading um, and they do they describe like the, the warriors and weapons describes the different races but it does it in an accessible interesting way like a story like way so it's not just reading rules it's you know more of a story of what their, what their humans are like or what dwarves are like and what some of the things are that are important to them and same thing with the things that they would carry with them as they're out on an adventure. And the creatures tell them about some of the, you know, monsters that they're going to encounter. And some of them are a little bit scary. But the way that they're explained is like a fairy tale story. So I think they're um, they're really interesting. They're about $12.99 each is the MSRP for them. Um, you can get them on Amazon. You can definitely get them at, I've seen them at Barnes & Noble. Um, I think they're fascinating. And I think that they're 
Our daughter is um, six going on seven, and they are a little bit challenging of a read for her, but she's an advanced reader for her age. Um, like I said, I think they're probably geared towards the maybe eight to 12 crowd. Yeah. Yeah, really depending on the reading. I'm looking at just some of the pages in it. Um, it's definitely not an easy reader book, um, but yeah. definitely way scaled down than the standard Dungeons and Dragons books. Well, I mean, so. I think the big key is with these things, and this is kind of a, um, an expression of you know what they're going with with the other books too is it's more about the story than the stats and these are really mm -hmm. all about um you know helping understand choices and what those choices are about um and i think it's i i think it's really cool i i especially like the uh the heroes book that actually for each of the classes presents like an idea for a character <coughs> and they are not stereotypical characters either you know there's um a paladin who is a dragonborn that has like a magical drum and you know like really just kind of expressing what the characters can be like and showing the value of creativity and that's really what these the D dungeons and dragons has always been about but i really feel like fifth edition and you know as it has grown is really all about just kind of showing that um it's gonna be i man I, it's been a wild handful of years can't wait to see a few more jenna were you trying to show me something no okay so um so that's the first topic of you know kind of the wild stuff that has happened over the last you know, handful of years since this podcast started. Um, any final thoughts on uh, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition before we move on? No, I think we covered the big touch points. Absolutely, I'd love to hear all y'all's thoughts. So, everybody that is listening, you know, send a message on in to the Engage Family Gaming Facebook page. You can go there by going to engagefamilygaming.com/slash/facebook or facebook.com/slash/engagefamilygaming. Let us know your thoughts. Are you playing Dungeons and Dragons now? Have you thought about potentially playing it? Um, you know, let us know. Um, this is something that we will be covering more in writing and in videos, etc., um, on our uh, you know various pieces of content as time goes on. In fact, we are going to have a monthly podcast dedicated entirely to uh, Dungeons and Dragons that will be airing by the end of this year so keep your eyes on that if this is a topic that is of interest to you um, okay next let's talk about legacy games I think that is if I think if I want to think about the last you know the, the last you know I it certainly is in four years but the last stretch of time I think legacy games have really taken over and I think at this point they've almost died down but it's impossible to talk about board games without talking about what legacy games mean and what they are and what our thoughts are. Linda I know you did some homework beforehand yes. because that is your <laughs> MO um, what are some fast fun facts about legacy games that so uh, you want to share with the crew with the crew out. so I will read out my homework assignment um, so from the research I did it looks like Rick, Risk Legacy came out around 2012 so like you said it's outside of that four year window however Pandemic Legacy which is sort of what really set the board game world on fire with the Legacy games that came out in 2015 so more within the, the window of the podcast okay um, and both of those both Risk Legacy and and Pandemic Legacy were co-designed by Rob Davio. Who is the father? Of, that's why they call him the father of Legacy Games. Mm -hmm. so, Absolutely. So um, for those folks listening that might not know, like what, like kind of what makes a game a Legacy Game, I think, did, did either one of you want to take a stab at it? Sure. I mean, I can try to summarize it, See, see if I can do it concisely. Um, basically, my understanding of Legacy Game is that it is an episodic board game that you are intended to play over multiple sessions, and you are permanently changing the game depending on what happens through the course of the gameplay. Does that summarize it pretty 
Yeah, pretty, pretty concisely. Much. Jenna, anything else you want to add? No, I think that's a pretty good description of what legacy games are. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the permanence, I think, is the big piece, right? Um, and that's what drives Jenna nuts. Um, she ha- <laughs> she absolutely hates it. You know, anytime we're playing a legacy game and we have to rip up a card or, you know, put a sticker on a board, like it really kind of... She has concerns, Jenna. I I think that was more in the beginning when I first started hearing about legacy games, our first try at a legacy game. I don't think I feel that way as much anymore because it's be- I become used to it. But I think in terms of board games, I mean, we've grown so much in the podcast in in what's available out there and what we know about them that. You know, I'm a little bit more used to it now. I'm not as stressed about it. It is challenging, though, to do that, to rip up a card when you're, you know, the first time you do it. But now it's kind of old hat. Linda, can you imagine? Let me let me paint a picture for you. So the first time Jenna was asked to rip up a card as part of a game thing, can you imagine? I mean, just imagine for just a, a brief moment how freaked out she was. It was kind oh, of... I, I can imagine. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it did I not go well. I wouldn't rip it up, actually. I put it underneath something and tucked it away just in case we needed it later. Even though everybody said you don't need it later. I'm like, but I I, I just can't. Yep. She, uh, she definitely struggled with it. So what's crazy about the Legacy Games, she's not the only person who has these kinds of problems. And I'd love for the audience to chime in on what your thoughts are. There are some people that won't play Legacy Games because they really dislike that idea of, you know, destroying stuff. Um, I mean, it doesn't necessarily bother me. Um, I think it's kind of hysterical. Well, I used to think it was hysterical that uh, my wife would freak out about it. But... Um, the so these games um, for a while it felt like everything was getting a legacy game. It's true. Um, to so to the point where I'm so very you know like I'm very surprised that uh, Hasbro has not tried to make like a Monopoly legacy. Like that's kind of I'm just surprised that they haven't. Um, just because everything else has gotten um, has gotten its own version, it feels like. Um, but the, the like most recently this year, um, they released Machi Koro Legacy, um, which is a uh, again developed in partnership with Rob Daviau. Like this is just a kind of an example of just another, just everything's getting that one of those versions. Um, I can't believe that we didn't hear about that. Our son, I mean, from our oldest, because I mean, he's a huge Machi Koro fan. We definitely he heard about anything. it. He's but def- not through him. Um, well, yeah. He's, I'm surprised. Um, he and I have spoken about it on a number of occasions. Um, so maybe we just didn't tell you, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Um, it's available right it, – well, it's available right now. Um, from Holiday gift ideas. Yeah, holiday gift ideas. You're right. Sure. Machi Coral Legacy. It's what's – so the – so here's my question for the two of you guys. So the <coughs> the legacy games um is it a fad? Like are we seeing it's uh, it's slowing down. Do we think that it's going to go away or is it just going to slow down and just kind of just be a regular part of the board game space or what do you think? I think it's slowing down for sure. I don't see it going away because if a design, designer or developer has a great inspiration for a game that can be turned into legacy I think we'll still see those but it feels like it it burned really brightly and now is fading away just a little bit and ironically I never have played a legacy game yet we'll definitely have to do that with you Um, (laughs) I do think that it is like you said it it caught on fire it was huge for a while and I think that um, it is starting to fade out but I think it's going to be kind of the same thing as escape rooms um hugely popular people still go to them it's just not the big thing anymore but when you think about some of the problems that people had with legacy games and the investment involved i think people have recognized that yeah okay you might be spending 
70 80 dollars on a legacy game probably much less on some of them now but for a series of people to have episodic entertainment over a long stretch of time you'd spend 70 dollars if you bring five people to the movies easily you know um so i think that that hurdle that was a problem in the beginning people have really gotten over and i think that that lends to more legacy games being created just slowly along the way like you said as they fit as they make sense um just like escape rooms i mean they're not the hugely popular thing anymore but now schools are getting involved in them and classes are having them and all kinds of things like that i think they start out popular in a certain group and then they kind of fade in that group, but then their popularity might trickle down somewhere else in a different field. So I think people who maybe aren't hardcore gamers like they were when they first came out might be interested in them now. You might see a family pick up Pandemic Legacy as opposed to a gamer family right away. You know what I mean? Something like right. that. And what you said with the sticker shock, it's a lot when you think about you know a 50 to $70 game for a really hardcore gamer, they're easily dropping $100 on some of these really Euro games that have all these components. That's not an unusual price tag. And I think that's the other shift as it becomes more common to see these little bit higher end in Target. True. It makes a difference. You know, when you see Pandemic in Target and then, oh, there's Pandemic Legacy. Well, you know, it, it definitely changes the culture when it's sitting on a Target shelf or even a Barnes & Noble shelf. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to take another piece, and this is just something like the 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 hate against those games, which, I mean, obviously they sold very well and people loved them. So, you know, it's not like the hate went too far or, you know, held it back in any way. But one of the things that was said against them was the idea like, well, I don't want to buy a game and only be able to play it 12 times or whatever. Um, and then, you know, the kind of the counterpoint to that is, you know, kind of the consumer culture for board games, because so many of them come out, like there are a lot of folks that get a board game and play it once. It's true. And never play it again. So the idea Absolutely. that, oh, well, you can only get 12 plays out of this game, that's actually not necessarily a problem, because every time you play it, it's at least a little bit different. And in a lot of cases, you're not going to play a board game 12 times regardless i mean we certainly have that i mean we have games that outside of you know especially games that we didn't get for review um you know games that were either given to us i mean we have games that were given to us that are still in plastic <laughs> you know um you know be they gifts or things like that let alone you know the exception being the games that we get for review obviously we play those a bunch but you know the, the stuff that were given to us or that i bought because it was on sale you know how much you know going broke saving money sorry honey but the um you know i think that i think over time people kind of realize that that particular argument against them stopped holding water so. i agree yep i agree and it's sad i mean that, like you said the consumerism when it comes to games they we all want the new thing we all want to try something new and cool and we do we have games that are still in plastic just because of the time we don't have time to get them to the table um life is hard when it comes to that kind of stuff but um i think we have to you know being that this is our 200th episode and we've been talking about board games quite a bit i remember when we were talking about bringing euro games to the table and introducing people to a euro game and how Ticket to Ride was a transition game. And it's amazing to me that this podcast is being recorded so long that we've gone from just introducing people to Euro games to Euro games and legacy games and all kinds of challenging games, like you said, being available at Target. We've come a long way in the board a game lot. world in yeah, four lots years. Has changed. A lot's changed in just four years. And board games are mainstream again. I mean, when we were kids, they were something that we did Monopoly, Candyland, you know, Clue, Uno. <laughs> um, Uno, things like that. I mean, they were fun, but we all got bored with them. And as we were teenagers, we kind of let them go and really didn't pick them up again until later. But just like with D&D, board games are a thing now. You can't watch an episode of, you know, The Big Bang Theory or half of the, you know, 
shows on TV, there's always somebody playing a board game now. And they're not just Monopoly or Clue. It's it's the Euro games. Um, you know, when the Green Bay Packers are playing Catan before a football game and they're posting that on their social media, I think that we're in a we were in a place where it wasn't hugely popular. We were just starting to try and get people into it to now it's again, board games are a form of entertainment that's real and something that people can do together. And they don't say, Oh, that's nerd culture. It's not like that anymore. Well, I mean, I think we can't talk about that without talking about the fact that the board game coverage on engaged family gaming was an accident. So true. I mean, Linda was there, right? Like, and Jenna was there too. Like, but all three of us, like, when I started Engage Family Gaming, and I've said this, I've told this story before, but when I started this website, it was intended to be a video game site. I'm a video game writer. I want to write about games, but I specifically want to write about video games. And when the site was getting ready to go up, that spring, I reached out to our, our friend group, for the most part, and was like, hey, I need writers. Who wants to help? And a few people were like, well, I'd write about board games. And I, and I was like, you know what? Fine. And I remember having the conversation with Jenna being like, man, you know, like, I guess some of the only bites I'm getting are from people that want to talk about board games. I figured we would get, you know, maybe every couple of months we'd put up like a roundup of board games. Because I didn't really know how big the board game space was. Um and uh, go figure, they started doing just monster numbers traffic-wise compared to some of the video game content that I was creating. And I was like, well, I guess maybe we should start covering it a little bit more. And I remember the day that I looked at Jenna and was like, you know what? If we're going to do it, we got to figure this out. You know, let's get one. And I bought Ticket to Ride. And it was on sale and whatever. And I brought it, you know, and it came into the house and we learned it. And, you know, I remember... After we finished like a couple of games, I looked at Jenna and was like, "Oh man, this is this is cool," <laughs> and <laughs> that's how it happens for so many people, right? Like the the double digit growth for more games for the last like what like ten years, something like that. I mean, they, they do that because people have those moments like me. And now, you know, we're here. We are celebrating episode two hundred of the uh, podcast, and just about half of those episodes and it would be exactly half if it wasn't for E3 episodes which are more plentiful but just about half of those episodes have been dedicated to board games um, and that's completely by accident but just driven by how popular these games are and how many of them there are and how much coverage is needed for them because Man, you know, like there's a there's a huge audience out there looking for information about board games, um, and I had no idea. I would, I mean, I like to think I'm pretty connected to nerd culture and to video games, and board the board game sphere caught me so off guard, right, Jenna? I mean, oh, I know. I remember, you know, the first couple reviews that we wrote about board games and the first couple games that I found and. You know, I was like, oh, we'll write about Ticket to Ride, and we'll write about Suro, and we'll, we'll write about, I think it was Forbidden um, Island. Forbidden like, Island. the first couple for, first couple of board games that I wrote reviews for, and all of a sudden, people were like, whoa, this is awesome, and we play them with a few friends, and now you think about those games, and they're old. I, and not in a bad way, but they've been out there for a while. They are, they're in Target. They're in Walmart. They've had spinoffs of all of them, and... It's just mind-blowing to me that, like, I started writing about GameWrite, a little company that made all these games for kids and families, and now GameWrite's out there in your big box stores, and it's not obscure anymore. It's not, you know, birthday gifts. We go to birthday parties, and, and these games that I started seeing years ago are now given to these kids over and over again, and it's just... It's cool. It's really neat. Like I, I know that we give board games out to our friends and our friends' kids because that's who we are. But you know, when I go to some party at the local roller skating rink and I see fifteen board games being opened up by a kid there, I'm like, wow, this is this is everywhere now, and it's not Candyland, and it's not the boring hate to say it games that I remember from childhood. It's it's cool games and these kids are exploring their imagination and they're learning all kinds of things and they're completely 
unaware that they're learning while they're doing it. And, you know, it's just, it's cool. It's really cool. I mean, speaking of giving gifts, I mean, we definitely infected the the Robo House um, on like I don't a know, level. What you're talking about? On a My level, dining room yeah. didn't get turned into a game room. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Listen, um, that was not expected, and that I didn't do the layout of your house. But the but you know I but just like I've dragged, I think I've just dragged you guys along everywhere I have gone. It's like, hey, I'm gonna go. Dress up like an elf in the woods, and I just drag the robles next to behind me. Um, you know, I'm gonna get a PlayStation Four, drag the robles on behind me. Well, at least one roble um, on behind me. You know, and now in the board game thing, and so, and I think our experience is not that different. You know, that's what's crazy about board game. Like, you don't see Super Bowl commercials for Catan, right? Um, you know, th- these games are all kind of spread by, you know, influencer marketing, like kind of what we do, but also word of mouth. I mean, and that's the advantage that board games have is that all that the majority of them, you can't play them by yourself, you know, um, or you can, but in a lot of cases, their goal is to be played with other people. And so the fa- that it just makes it that much easier to just drag your friends along. So, uh, thanks for that, Linda. Uh, but I'm sorry, I guess, for uh, taking up a room in your home. It's like I moved in, only I'm not there. I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. <laughs> Jen, you're on mute. Oh, I said it's not like you moved in. It really isn't. A, a, a clean room full of games is not at all like living with you. Just, just, just say. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm just uh, saying it's it's the truth. Um, haven't you missed me on these podcasts? I mean, I do. Um, I just wish Amanda was here so she could see uh, what I go through. Um, we'll have to have her listen. We'll, we'll just have to have you come back on when Amanda is feeling better. So, um, so that's Legacy Games. Um, you, I, I agree with you guys. I don't think it's going to stop. Um, it's going to slow down because all things do. Um, but listen, this year they put out Machi Koro Legacy, so they can throw Legacy on everything. Um, it'll be interesting to see how things develop as time goes on. Um, speaking of things developing, now this is an absolutely... So, uh, some of the other things we've talked about kind of have roots before our podcast, but this last topic um, absolutely is a product of the last handful of years and that is the rise of digital versions of board games now this is not necessarily something that the three of us have like gone hog wild on however i'll tell you what my wife has spent a very uh large amount of time playing splendor and patchwork on her phone slash ipad um and so it's it's not all me. Your daughter loves Patchwork now. She discovered that she can play Patchwork with other people online. She gets really mad when there's nobody on there playing. So it's not just me. Okay, I didn't know that. I didn't know that our daughter was like an online Patchwork shark. Is she any good? <laughs> can she beat people? She can. She's actually pretty good at it. She's figured out how to play. Um, I'd be curious to see how that translates to playing it on the table. So I told her we would bring it with her when we go away this, bring it with us when we go away this weekend to see if she can actually translate playing digitally to playing on the table and having that kind of spatial awareness going on. That'll be interesting. Linda, what do you think? You think it'll, do you think it'll translate? I think there's going to be a bit of a learning curve because there is, it's not the same, but it's, the same I mean I haven't played patchwork specifically but my experience with the different board games digitally it's the same rule set but because the computer manages the pieces the motor component is not a a feature that you have to worry about digitally so I think that might be where she might struggle with that kinesthetic piece just until she gets used to it because if she's only used to the screen and that and just having to manage telling the computer where to put her pieces versus physically doing it. I think there might be a little little learning curve, but not much. She's a savvy gamer. She'll she'll get it quick. Yeah, I'm not playing against her. She'll beat me. Um so I think I think you brought up a good point with digital games though. In general, they are more 
streamlined and the computer does a lot of the managing for you and it does a lot of the kind of tangential thinking the stuff that you don't really need to focus on when you're playing the game it does all that little stuff for you and then you get to just focus on the gameplay so tactically i think i play some of these games that i play online better than i do with the physical game because i'm seeing a more focused directed version of the game than i am when i have it laid out on the table and there's other players and there's people or things i mean yeah there's there's um ai players that you play against in some of these games but you're not focusing on oh hey what did he just pick up over there oh i forgot what that one picked up i you know you're more looking at your own strategy and tactics on a computer because it focuses down that way and it doesn't do that on the table so i think that in general digital games are more stream yeah absolutely the other piece of it that i've noticed is a lot of times it'll auto score as you go. So while you could keep track as you're going, in some games you have to keep track of the score along the way. It's more right there, because if the score is just displayed on the screen, you're more aware of that. Um, the other thing I noticed is in a game like Splendor, there's rules with what you can take. Well, the computer, if you forget, oh, I can't take this because there's only one left, or whatever the rule is in that point it it just it won't let you so it helps kind of guide you and scaffolds it a little bit for you um as you're working through the game and these little rules that you might forget and do it wrong it won't let you so there's a component of that too how it kind of builds in this you know scaffolding yeah absolutely i think you know the whole thing with digital games is People found the board games, they were popular, but they couldn't take them with them. They couldn't play them while they were on break or while they were in the meeting that they shouldn't have been playing them in. And once they started <laughs> oh, downloading happened. them, right. once they started <laughs> downloading them on their phones, they're like, oh, hey, I can take my favorite game. I can take Ticket to Ride, or I can take Zero, or I can take Splendor, and I can play them on my phone with AI opponents. And you hone your strategies to get a little bit better. But on the other hand, it's a, I think it's a really different experience i think it's you know it's cool but it's more isolating um it's definitely not a even if you're playing against people online it's definitely not a social experience um i think it's they're neat they're they're interesting versions of the game but i don't think it feels like i'm playing a board game it feels like i'm playing an iphone app you know or or yeah. whatever i mean it just takes some of that away i also think that they hit their their peak in popularity I don't think that they are as popular again I think there's there's Apple Arcade there's video games that are like Nintendo is putting a whole bunch of stuff onto phones now I think board games have kind of to me I, it feels like lost some of that edge that they had for a while yeah it might be that I think some of the people that really love a certain game may try to still find it digitally but they're going to be looking for it versus it just being out there and popular you know, if you really like, um, oh, what was, there was one that I heard and then somebody talking about that they just loved it as an app. I'm drawing a blank on which game it was, but it was so clean on the app and so easy to play and they prefer it. So they went searching for it and made sure they had it. So in that kind of circumstance, we may run into more of that where it's people that are passionate about a game are going to find it, but it's right. not going to be super popular. Right, yeah. and and some of the board games that have been made into apps are, are pricey when it comes right. to comparing them with other apps. So you know, seven ninety nine or you know, Apple Arcade, where I can play as many as I want for one price. Maybe I'll pick the Apple Arcade game and find something that's reminiscent of it. You know what I mean? Um, right. You have so to pick I, and choose. There's so much out there. There is. There is. I I don't know, Steve. What do you think when it comes to digital board games compared to tabletop games and their long-term feasibility and, and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I, I think, I don't think that we really can compare them. You know, I mean, I, I mean, we have to because they have the same rules, but I think ultimately by taking it and turning it into a digital product, it's a different thing. Um, and we have to treat it that way. Um, what I think is really interesting is how popular it is. Um, you know, I think when they started, a lot of folks had their doubts. Um, but there are a handful of event, you know, digital board game evangelists, you know, online, etc., 
um, that really kind of swear by them. And, you know, the more I, you know, give them a try and play them at conventions, etc., um, I, I like them because um, they give me that board game experience without forcing me to handle the minutiae. Um, I think a, a decent analog is like Magic the Gathering Arena, which is a digital version of a collectible card game. Um, and it lets me have a really cool magic experience without having to get all my friends together or convince you to, you know, come downstairs and play a board game with me or, you know, whatever. I can just play at any time. And also, you know, you talk about, like, not having to deal with, like, the kinesthetic, like, dealing with the pieces and the fiddly bits. I mean, you know how many tournament games of magic I have lost because I was, like, sorting through my land, and, like, you can't do that in Arena. Like, it's it gives people like me, who might be a little bit distracted by some of that, like, less distractions. Um, and gives another vector to, like, enjoy an experience. Um, so, I, I mean, I certainly love it. I think it's really interesting that they started... Um, I mean, we can't... They, they definitely are growing in popularity or started because of you know, mobile games, right? Like on our phones and iPads, where it's kind of a perfect environment. But now we're seeing them released on Steam, uh, on PC, and also on the Nintendo Switch. I mean, you were in the room when they announced Carcassonne for the Nintendo Switch, and our oldest lost his damn mind. Now, admittedly, he is related to the living embodiment of hype, that is me. But still... (laughs) I mean, he got up and he was, like, doing the Orange Justice and, like, really, like, freaking out. And it was over Carcassonne, which is a wonderful game. One of my favorite games. But, like, you know, it was Carcassonne. You know? Right, Jen? I mean... Well, no. And we were just saying, I I think that these games, when they first came out, were hugely popular. I think they're going to appeal to a, a person, like you said, who doesn't want the necessarily the fidgeting and all the craziness i think that they are the only thing i think is i think the switch actually is a great medium form because it is handheld it's portable it's like the ds people can take it with them maybe you can play two player games together on that i think that that's a better medium than the iphone like i don't know if you were you know you know how much i said about Apple Arcade being a better value than buying an $8 Well, app. I, I mean, I heard that, obviously. I just didn't talk... I mean, I think... I don't know that it's fair to compare, like, a $5 subscription service to, like, mobile board games. I just... I, I, it's I not just that I didn't that hear you. I, I agree with you. It's a better value. But it, arguably, it's a better value than console games, too. Because some of these games that we've been talking about and, you know, dealing with coverage on the site are great and it's five dollars a month on a device that everybody owns anyway yeah i just i think the switch is a great medium for it. i feel i don't like the anti-social part of the digital games personally but that's just i'm more of a social gaming person in general than playing solitary like i i very rarely play games on my phone as much as you like to say i played a lot of hours of splendor and patchwork that's only if i'm like really bored or really need to just tune out the world i like playing games socially okay i mean that's fair go ahead linda there's one other side of it because we ran into this last year when we were in the throes of the home renovation and when the poor boys were stuck at a tile store for like an hour and a half as we were trying to figure out tiles for the kitchen and the bathroom I pulled out my phone and they weren't playing a standard app. They were playing Ticket to Ride and Roll for it and doing Play and Pass. So it was the social part of it, which I know a lot of times when you're doing the digital, it is by yourself. But it's nice that at least some of the games have the Play and Pass option so that if there's a couple people sitting around, you can literally take the device and it's basically playing the board game, but just without the bits. That's true. So. That's true too. I don't have a lot of the more social ones on my phone because it's my phone is more of a. It's not something that I usually pull out and play games with, like I said. But right. I, like I said, I think the Switch is really. Gosh, if Nintendo can get on that and they can start taking some of these, you know, digital games and getting them out there, I think that our kids always have a Switch with them when they go somewhere. 
So that would be way yeah. more social. It's true. Um, you know, I think about packing up games like we're going away coming up and I think about oh geez what can we fit in a car there's five people in a really little trunk in our car how many games can we bring in we'd like to play you know 30 games but that's not feasible to pack all those games so having them on a mobile device that's more pass and that has more pass and play options might be a little bit better but maybe I just have picked the wrong games on my phone they don't seem as 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 game like they seem more like an you know just an isolated activity right i mean i was lucky that i had stumbled into uh, some sales and i got roll for it and i got ticket to ride which both the boys really enjoy and that's been a savior more than once when we're stuck unexpectedly somewhere where we're not prepared we don't they don't have a device of their own and i'm not a big fan of letting them just putter on my phone i'd rather be like you may go to this game and they can sit and it's more like I said it's like they're sitting playing the board game just without the physicality of it and right. worrying about losing the dice for roll for it that was Absolutely. the nice thing they literally sat in a little corner they had a little play area in the tile store I didn't have to worry about losing those little tiny dice because they had the phone and they were playing roll for it for like probably 20 minutes 30 minutes while we were doing our thing yeah see there you go so that definitely saved everybody's sanity um well I mean Maybe. I've met your husband. Okay. Um, At least it was one less stressor with the children being yeah. occupied. Yeah, okay. I, I was just, I'm just saying. I'm just playing. I mean, <laughs> you would think that I would was ill if I didn't take that shot. Um, it's true. So, yeah, I mean, it's the... I, I, when when they announced Carcassonne for the Switch, um, it was, it was actually, it was before Carcassonne. They announced Monopoly for the Switch. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, Monopoly, oh my gosh, Monopoly. And I was <laughs> like, no, for real, guys. This is a very big deal. Because, like, Monopoly is, like, you know, the most well-known board game on the planet, right? Probably pretty close. And the fact that it was there on the Switch, I was like, you know, I I'm not even worried about its popularity. But, man, is it one of those games where... It proved the concept of like being able to use the Switch to play board games anywhere. Um, and man, it, games are still coming out for it, and they're popular. And it's really been kind of a wild experience. Um, but it all started with Monopoly <laughs> on there. Um, and I mean, Steam actually has a very big, you know, collection of board games. And, you know, it turns out that, you know, it, with even with services like, you know, Tabletopia and Tabletop Simulator, um, I don't know if you, the two of you know, well, Linda, I mean, you deal with Kickstarters a lot. I mean, you know, I mean, having a Tabletop Simulator version of your Kickstarter game is turning into like a requirement um, yep. because it's just an easy way to demo games. And again, it's just more of this digital versions, you know, the, the intersection between like our real life and our digital space it's just all kind of squishing together. Yeah. The line definitely is getting more and more blurry every year. Yeah, it's true. So um, that is, again, that's just the three of us. We could we could go on on this for a while. I think we've kind of um, beaten that horse to death. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not the only discussion to be had, though. I'd love to hear our audience's thoughts. So please, again, reach out to us on Facebook at uh, EngagedFamilyGaming.com slash Facebook or Facebook.com slash EngagedFamilyGaming because we're fancy. Um, let us know, you know, do you play digital board games? Is that, do you want to keep those things separate? Um, I, I'm always interested to hear uh, what people's thoughts are on some of the topics that we discuss um, so, uh, Linda and Jenna, um, this has been episode 200.5. We did it. We made it. Yay. Um, <laughs> here's to 200.5 more. Um, so I'd like to thank the two of you for joining me. Um, both of you will obviously be back many times, um, if for nothing else, because Amanda, uh, was very disappointed that she didn't get a chance to, uh, podcast with Jenna. She has never heard Jenna's voice. <laughs> so, uh, She's uh, so maybe we'll just have to have you come stay up late one night and come back. Um, 
So, folks listening, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording. Uh, I'm going to be back next week where we are going to talk about the results of BlizzCon um, and we'll find out whether or not Blizzard dug themselves out of a hole or not. I doubt it, but we'll find out. Sounds like it's going to be a fun episode. I'd love to hear... I'd love to hear, you know, how it goes. I know our kids are very anxious to see what happens moving forward, especially with the announcement of uh, Overwatch 2. Yeah, it's going to be, if that happens, but ESPN reported on it, so I'm feeling pretty okay. But anyway, that's for next week. So, uh, this week, this has been the Engaged Family Gaming Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back soon. Uh, Y'all have a great day, and don't forget to get your family game on. Bye. Bye. Good night, everyone. We did it. Yay. Music for the Engaged Family Gaming Podcast is Android Sock Hop by Kevin McLeod and audio production by Six Pack Nerds Productions.